As Ron has mentioned, we are truly excited about marking the 1,000th uh, program that has been produced, uh, will have been produced, we hope, if we can get our directors well enough, one of them at least, to tape this afternoon about 5 o'clock. We had intended to do that earlier, but we've had sickness among the crew, and uh, that happens. So we're sorry about that, but we're going to try to uh, get that done maybe this afternoon. But if not, we'll do it, the Lord willing, next week. But it's number 1,000 that we are ready for, and uh, certainly we're thankful to God that we have been able to produce 1,000 of these uh, Good News Today programs, which began as a part of the Gospel Broadcasting Network. It's still aired on that network, but is now under White Oaks oversight as a separate entity and uh, being seen on the worldwide uh, web and uh, commercial stations in various places, including here in Chattanooga. So we're looking forward to that time together tonight to mark that uh, occasion after our evening worship. And I thought it would be good today in light of that to perhaps spend a day in our two worship periods this morning and this evening uh, with an emphasis on evangelism, with an emphasis on on soul winning. And so uh, this morning and tonight we will do that as we talk this morning about the joy, and we have just sung about that, that joy, and I appreciate the appropriate songs that have been uh, chosen by Brother Bobby for, uh, for this uh, lesson, I believe, the joy of a world won to Christ. Can you imagine the joy of a world that has been won uh, to Christ? Now, we know certainly that uh, the Bible teaches us that uh, the majority of people tragically reject the gospel, but, but there is great joy in knowing that we have made every possible effort to reach uh, a lost world with the gospel of Christ. And that portion of it that is reached, what joy it brings, and that's what we want to talk about uh, this morning, and what joy it will bring to us, uh, not only now, but, but later. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, because the Bible has a great deal to say on the subject of joy. And many of the passages in Scripture where the word joy is found emphasize both the joy of the soul that is won and the joy of the soul winner. And I want us to think about that in our study this morning. The joy of the soul won to Christ and the joy of the soul winner. Think with me for a few moments, first of all, about the joy for the soul that is one to Christ. And think about the New Testament examples of conversion that reveal this joy of the soul that has been one to Christ. And we go back to the very first time that the gospel of Christ was preached to see that kind of joy experienced by some 3,000 precious souls on that day of Pentecost when the keys to the kingdom were used to admit those 3,000 or so precious souls into the kingdom when the gospel was preached by Peter and the other apostles and when those who were there, many of them were convicted in their hearts that they had been guilty of crucifying the Christ, the Son of, of the living God. And then Acts 2.41, after they had cried out in verse 37, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then they were told, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then verse 31, 41 says, Then those who gladly received, after Peter used many other words in verse 40 and told them about the promise of verse 39, then verse 41, there's where we see a transformation that begins to take place. Then those who gladly received his word, those who gladly received his word, 
were baptized. And there were added to them in that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.41 begins a transformation process as guilt is transformed into gladness upon obedience to the gospel of Christ by these 3,000 or so precious souls. In Acts 2.47, a few verses later, we see they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was continuing to add to the church daily those who were being saved. Being saved how? By that same obedient process that those 3,000 or so precious souls had undergone. They believed with all of their heart that Jesus was the Christ, the one they had been guilty of crucifying. They responded to that belief by moving forward by faith to fully repent of their sins and then to confess the name of Christ, no doubt, as we see confession elsewhere taught in Scripture. And they were baptized, buried in water, where not the water but the blood of Christ was reached to cleanse them from their sins. And guilt was then transformed completely into gladness and absolute joy and gratitude of heart for that wonderful transformation that had been made possible by the love of God and by the love of Christ. And no wonder they were praising God. No wonder we read what we do in the verses that follow the verse about their burial and baptism, that they continued steadfastly, verse 42, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. They continued steadfastly. Why? Because guilt, the burden of sin, had been lifted and they had been transformed from guilt to gladness. When we look a little bit later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, and there we have the account, remember, of that eunuch who was on his way to Jerusalem to worship and had been returning, and Philip uh, has been, been instructed uh, to go to him by deity, went to him and, <clears throat> and preached to him Jesus. And we see what preaching Jesus involved, because Acts 8.35 says he preached Jesus to him. And verse 36 says, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Where did the eunuch learn about baptism? In the preaching of Jesus. Obviously, the preaching of Jesus included the preaching of baptism. Otherwise, the eunuch would have had no way of even bringing up the subject. And yet when he did and asked what hinders me from being baptized, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now look at verse 39. Now, when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that he, the eunuch, saw him no more, and he, that's the eunuch, went on his way, what? Rejoicing. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. No wonder after his conversion. And then a little bit later on in Acts chapter 16, more than one conversion recorded there, but we'll concentrate on the one concerning the jailer and his household. And of course, when that great earthquake occurred, which certainly got the attention of the jailer, didn't it? And he came in to, to Paul and Silas and... and uh, and asked, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus. Verse 31, and you will be saved, you and your household. But they had to tell him what to believe, and obviously belief involves something he had to do, otherwise they would have not continued as they did to speak the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And the speaking of the word of the Lord, as in the preaching of Jesus to the eunuch, 
had to involve baptism because he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. But verse 34 says, Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and here it is, and he rejoiced. There's that joy, that joy of conversion. He rejoiced having believed in God with all of his house. That belief was an obedient belief, obviously, and it produced the same kind of joy that was experienced by the eunuch, the same kind of joy that was experienced by those 3,000 or so on Pentecost, the same kind of joy that is produced where every genuine conversion to Christ takes place. There should be that genuine joy. We're not saying that tragically there are they're not those who rejoice over a conversion process that is not according to Scripture, and they mistakenly rejoice thinking they have done what God would have them to do. But we can know, thanks be to God, that we can rejoice in keeping with what the Scripture says and that our joy can be genuine joy because our conversion is a genuine conversion if it is in complete harmony with those beautiful examples we've just cited and more that could be cited and with the precepts that are set forth in the New Testament. We can know that our cause for rejoicing is a valid cause for rejoicing. The joy for the soul that is one to Christ. Why is it there? Because of the great burden of guilt which is lifted. We often sing that great old hymn, Burdens are lifted at Calvary. And oh, are they ever. But they're only lifted at Calvary as a result of our coming to Calvary, that is, meeting the terms of the one who shed his sinless, precious blood there in order that we might experience that great joy that flows from that genuine conversion that lifts that guilt, guilt that is transformed into gratitude and love for the one who has made possible the forgiveness of our sins. But you know, that, that brings to mind the fact that before we can ever rejoice, we must repent. But before we can ever repent, we must recognize the sin that has separated us from God. And that perhaps is the greatest barrier that we face in trying to win a world, the world, to Christ today. Is the refusal, if you will, of so many people to even, first of all, recognize that sin exists. Or that if it does, that it's as consequential as this book says it is that it will truly separate you forevermore from the God of heaven and from the joy of heaven. We must recognize sin before we'll repent of sin. And only when we repent based upon our belief and then confess and are baptized into Christ can we truly rejoice. But that gratitude about which we're speaking is a gratitude that will also make us go after conversion. Gratitude will make us go, as the Lord said, into all the world with the gospel of Christ. As the babe in Christ feeds upon the milk of the word, then his love and gratitude deepen, and his desire to reach others intensifies. You've heard me say before that there are three stages of Christian development. There's the please help me stage of Christian development. That's the babe in Christ. That's like the physical baby who, when born into this world, has to have help. Babies aren't born independent, obviously. They are totally dependent. And so the first stage of Christian development is the please help me stage. I need more help. I'm a babe in Christ. I need to desire the pure milk of the word, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. 
to grow thereby. But then I can move on. Just as that physical baby grows and, and moves on physically, spiritually I move on to the I can help myself stage of Christian development. I, I am more independent. I, I'm more solidly grounded. I perhaps don't need as much uh, of the attention of my brothers and sisters that I needed initially in my growth process. I'm growing toward maturity. I can help myself. Not that I ever reach a point where I don't need brothers and sisters. We never reach that point. We know that. But by the same token, we also know there's a maturation process spiritually that has to take place, that should take place if we're feeding upon that which we need to be feeding. And so I can help myself. But as I've said before, tragically, that's where a great many Christians, I'm afraid, stop because they think there are only two stages. Please help me and I can help myself. And if they stop there, they lose the greatest joy that God provides for his people because they fail to move on to the third and final stage, which is the let me help you stage. That's where the joy is. That's where the true maturity is. That's where the real the real blessing of Christianity is seen to its fullest, is when I have reached that let-me-help-you stage. And I'm concerned more about you than about myself because when I reach the let-me-help-you stage, then that causes me to become a soul winner and to experience the joy of leading others to Christ, of doing all that I can to see a soul one. To Christ. And that leads us to our second and final part of the lesson, the joy of the soul winner. What about the joy of the soul winner? It is the case that every child of God, babe or otherwise, a babe in Christ or the mature child of God, every child of God should be soul conscious. The babe in Christ may not have the knowledge and does not have the knowledge, obviously, of the mature Christian but a babe in Christ, as well as the mature Christian, each individual must be soul conscious. Everyone cannot preach, everyone cannot teach publicly, but every Christian should do what he or she can to win souls. And a part of that soul winning process certainly has to include living as a light in this world. That's why Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. There's a magnetizing influence that our lives should have toward others. When others look at us, they see something different. They see a light there to which they are attracted, a life to which they are attracted, hopefully, if they're thinking straight, and if they're not, then certainly that's not our problem, but our obligation is to be that light. Paul also wrote about it in Philippians 2, 14 and 15 when he said, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, listen to it, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom you, among whom, who are the whom? The perverse and crooked generation. You shine. You are to shine as lights in that crooked and perverse generation. That's what we've got to make sure that we are doing. That we're using the talents that God has given us. And of course, that reminds us of the great parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, beginning 
at verse 14, the five-talent man, the two-talent man, the one-talent man, and you know the account there, I'm quite sure. The five-talent man took those five and doubled them. The two-talent man took his and doubled them. The one-talent man took his talent, and because he said he was fearful, he knew his Lord was a hard man and so forth, reaping where he had not sown and so forth, he took his talent and, and buried it and then presented it to his master as if to say, look here, it's in as good a shape as when you gave it to me. I haven't done anything with it, but I haven't lost it either. And he was characterized by the Lord as what? A wicked and lazy servant. Wicked? Yes. Wicked. Why? Because he simply did not use what God had given him. And you've also heard me say in reference to the parable of the talents that you don't find the no-talent man anywhere in that parable. He's not there. And so we can't say, well, that parable doesn't apply to me because it doesn't mention the no-talent person. I'm a no-talent person. The fact that it doesn't mention a no-talent person means there is no such thing. We all have something to offer. And the beauty of it is, while we may not all possess the same abilities if we'll use what we have, God has promised that those abilities will actually increase with our use of them. But in our disuse of them, we'll be condemned. The work of winning souls to Christ, in whatever way we can, is a work that is accompanied by great joy. That's what we must never lose sight of. And let's look at some passages from Paul's pen that emphasize, first of all, the future joy of the soul winner. And then we'll look at a few passages that emphasize the present joy of the soul winner. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, Paul there refers to the rejoicing that he would experience over the ultimate salvation of those Thessalonian Christians, those whom he had converted. And notice what he, what he writes there in verses 19 and 20 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He asks a question, in effect. He says, what is our, what is our hope? or joy, there's joy, or crown of rejoicing. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. He's talking about future joy there. I'm going to rejoice at the judgment over seeing you saved, and I can rejoice because I had a part in leading you to Christ. And in the Philippian letter, he wrote much the same thing in chapter 4 of Philippians in verse 1 to the Philippian brethren. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. My joy and what? Crown. In other words, you're going to be a part of my crown at the judgment. You're going to be a part of my added joy at the judgment if you stand fast in the Lord. And back to Philippians 2.16, he expressed the desire that the brethren remain faithful so that he might be able to rejoice in the day of Christ over their salvation. Look at verse 16 of Philippians 2. Holding fast the word of life, holding fast the word of life so that what? So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That's the day of Christ's second coming so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored 
in vain. I'd like to know, Paul said, when we stand before God and Christ in the judgment, that you're faithful and that you have remained faithful, that you've held fast the word of life so that I can rejoice and not realize that I labored among you in vain because you all fell away. I'd like to be there and rejoice over your salvation. That's what he is saying. That's the future joy of the soul winner. And passages like 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 and Philippians 4, 1 and Philippians 2, 16 clearly place an emphasis on the added reward that we will have. We talked about this a little bit in the latter part of our class Wednesday night. Are there degrees of punishment? Yes. Are there degrees of reward? Yes, in the sense that the more time we spend in leading precious souls to Christ, hopefully the more of those precious souls who will be with us there in eternity. And therefore the more souls over whom we may rejoice. <clears throat> and we'll look at another passage in just a moment that shows us that even if they're not there, as long as we're faithful, we're not going to lose our salvation. But the joy of the soul winner is a future joy but it's also a present joy. We don't have to wait till the judgment to be able to rejoice over winning souls to Christ. I think we all know that. But let's be reminded of it in some of Paul's statements to these same Philippian and Thessalonian brethren about this present joy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 9, there is a strong expression of joy for the Christians at Thessalonica in this passage. Notice it. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. That's present joy. In effect, he's saying, what thanks can we render? How can I thank God enough? That's, that's in effect what he's saying. How can I thank God enough? For what? For you. Specifically for what, Paul? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. He's saying, what I hear from, about you, what I know about you, what has taken place in your lives, your genuine conversion, your faithfulness to God, it produces a joy that I have a hard time just expressing thankfulness for. I can't thank God enough for that. Now you think about that kind of joy, present joy among soul winners. Paul experienced it. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, he called upon the Philippian brethren there to make his joy full by being of one mind. He said, fulfill my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Fulfill my what? My joy. When? At the judgment? No, he's talking about present joy now. Fulfill my joy for you now by doing what? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Well, incidentally, does that tell us that we can be of one mind when it comes to this book? Absolutely it does. There are those who say, why, you can't possibly preach and teach that we can all believe the Bible alike that we can unite and believe the same way about this book? I better preach that we can because that's what Paul, that's what Paul called upon the Philippians to do. Would he ask them to fulfill his joy by being of the same mind or like-minded if it were not possible for them to be like-minded? 
Would he call upon them to have the same love if they could not possibly have that same love for one another? Could he call upon them to be of one accord and of one mind if that were not a possibility? Well, of course he wouldn't. Therefore, while we can certainly differ in matters of no consequence and opinion, when it comes to that which it takes to please God and to go to heaven, we not only can be united, we must be united. You remember what Jesus prayed? in his prayer to God just a short time before his betrayal. He turned his attention from the apostles for whom he'd been praying in the second part of that prayer in John 17, and he said, Neither do I pray for these alone, the apostles, but for all, for all them also that may believe on them through their word. There we are. We're in that picture now. That they may be what? One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. And I've often asked the question, are God and Christ united? Are they one in doctrine? Of course. Jesus prayed that we would be one as God and Christ are one. Therefore, was he praying that we be one in doctrine? Absolutely. Would he pray for something that was an impossibility? Absolutely not. And so we can be like-minded. We must be. And we'll fulfill our joy as well as joy in heaven, as we are. John wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's present joy that John was expressing. John's children there, to whom he refers, were those whom he had taught. And a man named Gaius, to whom John wrote, wrote this, uh, to whom John wrote this letter, may have been his, his convert. As he wrote those words, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. Now that passage we alluded to, we said we would talk about in terms of the reward that we gain by winning souls to Christ, that we could lose some joy if those converts don't remain faithful. And the fact that that wouldn't affect our salvation, it's, that passage is 1 Corinthians 3. And this was a passage we talked about Wednesday night too in our auditorium class. It's a key passage on the subject of soul winning. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15, you see something that is vitally important on the subject of soul winning. Look at those verses with me. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 begins, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. He has to be talking about a person's converts here. He's not talking about our own works by which we will be judged. Otherwise, he would be saying, the work that you have done, if it turns out to be of no value, if it's burned, verse 15, you're going to suffer loss, but you can still be saved even though you lived a life in disobedience to God. Who can believe that? Of course, that's not what he's saying. So when he says, if anyone's work is burned, which he has built on it, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. If anyone's work, verse 14, endures, he receives a reward. What's he talking about? Your converts. Those that you've rejoiced over 
in helping to convert in this life, if they make it to the next life still converted, then you have an added reward. If they don't, you'll suffer some loss in that some of that joy that you would have had is not going to be there. But you'll still be there as long as you remain faithful. Some converts who remain faithful unto the end are the gold, the silver, the precious stones. They're going to bring special joy to those who taught them the truth. The others who are described as wood, hay, and stubble who will fall away because the fiery trials of life will burn up that kind of material, that will produce a loss of joy for the soul winner, but the soul winner himself will be saved. How? By his continued faithfulness to God. And so while there is a loss of joy for the soul winner who convert, whose converts fall away, there's the satisfaction, though, still. There is still the satisfaction which comes from knowing one has taught the truth. That's what we're to do. Teach the truth. The joy of a world one to Christ involves the joy produced by the knowledge that all have had an opportunity to hear the gospel. That must be our determination. We know that not all will obey, but all must hear. And some will obey. Some will obey. Preacher friend of mine in Memphis, Tennessee, John Shannon, told me about a man with whom he came in contact as he was going out into the neighborhood there and doing some personal work. He came up to a house there in Memphis, and there was a, a man, turned out the man was 71 years old, who was sitting on his porch, as I recall John's telling me this, and, and John explained to him who he was and says, I'm from the Church of Christ, and after some brief conversation, this man, Melvin Taylor, said, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. He knew that what John was telling him was the very thing that he really wanted to hear, and that was his response. I've been waiting for you. The question is, who's waiting for you to say, I'm from the Church of Christ. I'm from the Lord's Church, the church you read about in the New Testament. And we have to believe there are still a great many precious souls for whom that restoration plea, that plea that says, let's lay aside the creeds and denominational doctrines and let's go back to this and this alone and let's unite upon it and be the pre-denominational body of believers about which we read in Scripture. That church. Not a denomination among denominations. Not I'm from the church of Christ and we're the best denomination. That's not what we are saying at all. And that's not what John Shannon was saying to Melvin Taylor. And that's not what Melvin Taylor got from what John Shannon was saying. Melvin Taylor understood, I've been waiting for you because you're here to help me become a New Testament Christian. Nothing more, nothing less and to be a part of the pre-denominational church about which we read in the New Testament. That's the plea that we make. God's people must take the plan of salvation to the lost, telling that lost soul that he or she must hear the gospel, Romans 10, 17, must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8, 24, or die in their sins, repent of sins or perish, Luke 13, 3, 
confess Jesus to be the Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38, Mark 16, 16, and then live faithfully thereafter in the church to which the Lord adds the obedient believer upon his obedience to the gospel, just as we saw in Acts chapter 2, the conversion account with which we began our study today. And to borrow a phrase from a hymn often sung, what a day of rejoicing that will be when God's people have taken the gospel to the whole world. What about you? You can't be a part of that. You can't be a part of taking the gospel to the world if you have not obeyed the gospel. And we plead with you to do that now in the only manner that you can as we've just described it from Scripture. And if you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that now as we stand and sing to encourage you.